Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. We've got some 20th century history on the podcast today. We've got the award-winning investigative journalist, uh, Ravi Samaya, on the podcast. And he has just done a, a great job of looking into the the death in 1961, the mysterious death of the UN Secretary General, Dag Hammarskjöld. Uh, he was this in, enormously impressive statesman. He was killed when he was trying to go and intervene, bring some peace and stability to the benighted people of the Congo, a place abundant its natural advantages, massive, beautiful, huge pool of energetic people, but just blighted by its history, by the genocide it suffered at the hands of the Belgians, um, by the uh, meddling of superpowers after its independence in the 1960s. The site of astonishing violence, the bloodiest war fought since the Second World War, fought on planet Earth, uh, is being raging in the Congo on and off for the last 30 years. Ravi has identified one episode in that that sad history, which tells you a lot, I think, about the state of Congo and the state of the world in the 1960s and in the Cold War. We actually got a new documentary on African history on our History Hit TV. It's like Netflix for history. We've got Luke Papera, and he has written and presented Africa, the Unknown History of Humankind. Um, it's doing really well on the service at the moment, so please go and check that out. You can use the code POD1, P-O-D-1. You get a month for free, and you get your second month for just one pound, euro, or dollar. So please head over there once you've listened to this podcast. Check out our Africa history, our new Africa history documentary, um, and then check out some of the other history documentaries we've got on there. World's best history channel, everyone. Enjoy. In the meantime, here's Ravi Samaya. Enjoy. Ravi, great to have you on the podcast, man. Lovely to meet you too, Dan. This is exciting stuff, isn't it? Historical sleuthing. Why why did you set out on this adventure? Um, I just happened across this story. I was working at the New York Times. I was working nights. And uh, it sounds very exciting because you're in the middle of a a big, busy metropolis, but it's incredibly boring. So you end up reading lots of stuff. And I stumbled across this story and I couldn't get it out of my head. So I just started making calls and sending emails. And before I knew it, I was waking up in the middle of the night thinking about flight paths and white supremacists and Cold War spies and thwarted idealists and all sorts of things. Thwarted idealists. Yeah, there's always plenty of those around. Now, tell me, who who was this man? J- JFK described him as the greatest statesman of our century. Tell me about him. Well, I think he's one of the unique characters of the last century. I mean, one of the reasons I was really drawn to this story is, if you look around the world now, you don't find many leaders who speak five languages, you know, compose poetry, are accomplished photographers, you know, deft diplomats, economists. Uh, he was kind of a man of letters. He was friends with John Steinbeck and Barbara Hepworth and 
you know, lots of the literary and artistic characters of the last century. Uh, and so in a sense, he's the quintessential idealist, but he also could operate in this very, very cutthroat world. You know, he was fine going toe to toe with Khrushchev and Kennedy himself and Harold Macmillan and operators like that. Uh, and what drew me to this particular story is he stood up for a principle in the middle of a moment when essentially everyone was just expedient. Uh, so the Congo in 1959 began to kind of throw off the shackles of its um, colonial past. Uh, its black citizens rose up and said, we want to rule ourselves, we'd like democracy. Uh, in, at which point Britain and America thought, well, it's going to go to Russia. And Russia thought it's going to go to Britain and America. And it became kind of a proxy war for the whole world. And Hamakold kind of had the courage and the deftness to say, no, I think these people need to rule themselves. And uh, that's kind of where the story begins. It's also a time when the UN seemed to matter so much. You know, it was like it was briefly, we had a kind of global parliament, didn't we? And 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 Khrushchev and Kennedy in particular, you know, US and Soviet elites, they paid a lot of attention to what was happening on the floor of that General Assembly in New York. Yeah, I mean, I think that's because we're still not too far from the end of World War II. And when I looked into the founding of the UN, now I think we look at it and we sort of see it as kind of a, you know, a kind of a footnote, sort of a thing that happens along the side of world affairs. But after World War II, when those countries got together and, and founded it, they didn't want another war. They didn't want another global conflict. They wanted to have, as you say, uh, a global parliament, uh, a place to figure out these difficulties. And so... Hammerfeld in the UN found itself right at the centre of many of these issues. I'm, I'm not sure if you asked Kennedy or Khrushchev at the time whether they would have been full of respect and joy about having to uh, dance around the UN, but they certainly it had much more impact than it does now. Uh, but I think that's in part a credit to Hammerfeld himself. So you think it's actually his leadership that, tr that it wasn't just the international order, he was such a profoundly important global statesperson? Well, I think it was both. I think that there was much more respect in the air for the UN. There was much less of a will to have another war. And he was a really idealistic leader who was very capable of of kind of deftly weaving between all these interests and and, and making himself matter, I guess, yes. Um, and so tell me how he met his end. So on September 17th, 1961, uh, he was flying from the capital of the Congo, which was then called Leopoldville and is now called Kinshasa. Uh, he was flying to a summit which he hoped would end the civil war in the Congo. After the Congolese rose up and said, we'd like democracy, uh, the army mutinied quite violently. Uh, and many of the white European residents of the Congo uh, traveled south to the most wealthy province called Katanga. Uh, it's where the mining companies had set up shop. It was where, you know, the, a lot of the world's copper came from, diamonds, uranium. Uh, and that uh, province promptly seceded and formed its own government. So the country was at, at civil war. Um, and Hammerfeld was flying to try and reunite the Congo. He wanted it to be one nation under a democratically elected leader. Uh, and just before he was due to land, just before midnight uh, on September 18th, uh, his plane crashed. It disappeared. Uh, and it wasn't found for 15 hours after that. And you know, shortly afterward, the Federation of Rhodesia and the Arsaland, uh, which was the sort of British associated government uh, tasked with investigating the crash, ruled an accident. And everyone wanted to kind of tie a neat bow on it and say, how sad this great man has died. But a, a bunch of other people thought there had been some foul play. And uh, I certainly found some evidence of that.
Now, I know you don't want to give away all the goodies in this interview, buddy, so that's fine. But what can you tell us? I mean, what evidence of foul play? And then, as ever, it's not just the crime, it's the cover-up. Precisely. Uh, to me, it was a, a kind of a blend of Agatha Christie and Game of Thrones, this story. There, there are four or five distinct suspects. Uh, when the cat and geese seceded, they protected themselves with tens of thousands of white supremacist mercenaries. There were a lot of uh, white supremacists floating around after World War II. Uh, and many of them became mercenaries, and many of them went to Katanga to fight that war. And so that's one set of suspects. Uh, Britain and America, as you might know, were implicated in the murder of the democratically elected Congolese leader, Patrice Lumumba. In a particularly nasty way. Yeah, he was sort of beaten to death, and, uh, you know, bits of his body were kept as mementos, and the Belgian government was deeply involved, and... You know, the CIA was deeply involved and MI6, one of the characters in my book, uh, an MI6 spy named Daphne Park, at one point in their life sort of admitted that they had helped kill the Mumba. So that's another set of suspects. And, and Russia had a, you know, kind of a phalanx of spies and, and others pouring into the Congo and they were funding many of these leaders. So that's another set of suspects. Uh, and then you have this nation known as the Federation of Rhodesia and Nyasaland, which was very hostile to the UN and to Hamakol and to a reunited Congo. So you have another set of suspects. Uh, and while all that's going on, you have this kind of great game. You have this uh, rich nation, uh, which the world is seeking to divide uh, among itself. So at the point that he took off, he was in a lot more danger than he thought. Um, and witnesses to the crash, which of course was supposed to be an accident, they saw another plane in the sky. They saw an explosion, they saw what they thought were bullets or, or bangs or flashes. Uh, and there were 16 people aboard the plane. 15 of them died on impact, including Hamakol. One survived into the next day. Uh, he was severely injured, uh, but he reported an explosion aboard the plane. Uh, and he had, you know, he described a scene that was not consistent with an accident. So you have a lot of evidence that points at perhaps foul play. And various people um, wanted him dead. What evidence have you now... Um... Well, what can you tell us before everyone goes to read your book? What, what evidence can you tell us about the, uh, the cover-up? I think it's a, maybe a peculiarly British way of approaching these things, but there's, there's sort of a tradition of a public inquiry with a preordained conclusion, I think. Uh, and that's sort of what happened here. There was sort of a notion that it would be best for everyone and, and the least possible fuss if, uh, if it was ruled an accident. So... You know, there was an investigation impaneled. There was a pretty thorough forensic examination. But any evidence that ran against the notion uh, that it was an accident was sort of dismissed. Um, and so it kind of was tied up. They had a court hearing. There were four very fancy QCs asking questions. There were many African witnesses who were uh, dismissed. It was, you know, they, it was said they couldn't possibly have seen another plane in the sky. They didn't know what they were talking about. Uh, they'd got confused. There was sort of a colonialist attitude toward it. Uh, and then a number of Hammerfeld's friends and people who were involved in the investigation uh, decided there was something afoot and they gathered all the evidence. They sort of gathered their own pile of evidence and they looked into it and found there was much more to it than initially met the eye. Uh, and they were met with a lot of hostility over the years. A lot of governments who sort of ostensibly were saying, we want to help you figure out what happened here. We're at the same time classifying materials. I mean, one of the things I heard was that the Swedish government had some soldiers there for the United Nations. They had been cannibalized during the course of the conflict. 
that was obviously very awkward and, and unpleasant. They didn't tell anyone at the time uh, and they don't want to open their files now or in previous years because it's simply too embarrassing. Uh, you have the British government trying to cover up key witnesses, uh, trying to prevent them talking to investigators from other nations. Uh, at one point in the 90s, uh, uh, an operative for the American National Security Agency, which is a bit like Britain's GCHQ, it gathers signals intelligence, so it intercepts communications essentially, said he had overheard some chatter on the evening of September 17, 1961, that suggested to him that Hammerfeld's plane had been shut down. But when he approached the American government, the FBI immediately destroyed all records it had connected with Hammerfeld. Of course, you can't say for sure why any of these things happened, but they do start to form a pattern when you look into it. It really does say something about the importance of this. I mean, most people today, sadly, couldn't mention, probably don't know the name of the US UN Secretary General. Uh, it does say something quite remarkable about this man, that he was regarded as somebody worth getting rid of, possibly at the highest levels of, of British American society, government. Absolutely. And it's, it's hard to overstate just how incendiary a move it was to do the principled thing in the Congo. You know, everyone felt like it would be the end of the world. The Brits and the Americans felt that if, if Russia got hold of the Congo, they'd have a strategic asset and frankly, access to uranium, which was the end of the world. And the Russians felt the same way about the Brits and the white supremacists and the mining companies that, that ran Katanga felt like it was the end of their way of life, you know? So the, the emotions were very, very high indeed. And the price that he paid in terms of, you know, putting a target on his back for doing the principal thing and saying, well, these people, they want democracy. They've, they've run an election. They've elected a leader and that leader has to lead. And the only chance for peace and prosperity in this nation is is that way. Uh, that was a really difficult incendiary thing to do. And I mean, sadly, if you look at the history of the Congo, he, he probably was right. How high do you think this conspiracy went in government circles? There are memos from both the CIA uh, and MI6 in that moment, which spoke of committing murder in the cause. They didn't specifically say Hamakwelt, but they were absolutely willing to kill people to, in order for their plan to proceed as, as they had in mind. And during the course of investigating, I found that the Rhodesian government, which was, it was an independent government, but it was very closely linked with the British government and very closely linked, particularly with the Foreign Office. Uh, it had a very hostile policy toward Hammerfeld. And in fact, its soldiers were given instructions to, to shoot planes landing at that particular moment. And we know they had <clears throat> spies, some linked with MI5, who were deeply involved in the investigation into the death of Hammerfeld, uh, with the aim of protecting whatever had happened. Uh, we should finish the story. What happened to Katanga's independence? So it kind of drifts to an end eventually, but in an extremely chaotic fashion. After Hammerfeld died, it sort of felt to me like everyone slightly shrugged and, and wanted to draw a line under the thing and, and they kind of made an imperfect piece and the history of the Congo is uh, is open to anyone who has access to Wikipedia and it doesn't make for pleasant reading and my personal view is that, that this conflict lies at the root of many of the problems we see there today. So what was the main impact of his death do you think? I mean for me it's in a sense the last moment as you 
suggested before that the UN was really relevant, that it was doing this wonderful thing. I mean, when I looked into the history of the UN, I came in as a bit of a cynic too. You know, I came in seeing it as a footnote. And you realize what a wonderful notion it was, what a wonderful notion it was for all these countries to get together and say, we don't want a war. We want a better way of doing this. We want to, to rise up to the higher parts of ourselves and be kinder to each other. And I think to some extent, we lost that when we lost Hamakov. And there's a certain kind of world leader that, that we haven't seen much since. I mean, Kennedy was dead a, a couple of years after Hamakov was. I mean, you have little little moments of wonderful leadership since then, but on the international stage, right in the center of geopolitics, I don't think we've had a character like him since. I mean, what's it like working as an investigative journalist? It sounds so glamorous and exciting. I mean, basically, you're describing why history matters. These things, even though they happened a long time ago, there is resistance to your investigation still, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, I, it, I actually didn't realise how much passions run high on this matter until I would pick up the phone and I would call someone and they would be really angry with me for calling. I called this uh, former Rhodesian, uh, I think he was an air chief marshal. I forget his rank now. And he was furious that I would be digging this up. Uh, you certainly don't get much help from from governments. I mean... I see being an investigative journalist as figuring out, I mean, usually we know what happened. I see it as figuring out why it happened and what those people thought they were doing. And I think that's really instructive. I think particularly at a very fraught moment like the one that we're in now, looking back at a fraught moment like the one in the early 1960s is very instructive. You see the same tendencies you see you see in this particular moment. You see people who feel that they have to get their way. They have to have their voice heard uh, or the world is going to end. You see people feeling like they have to do pretty brutal and unpleasant things for the sake of survival. So, I mean, I won't pretend it's all sitting around in cafes with holes cut in newspapers waiting for sources. It's a lot of digging through documents, a lot of making frustrating phone calls. Uh, it's much less cloak and dagger than, than I would have hoped when I was a child thinking I might do this. But it is incredibly fun because you get those moments where you've been sat in a library for three hours, you know, your mouth is dry. You kind of want to leave. You'll think, you think I'll flip over two more pages and you do and you find some fabulous piece of information. You find something that, that casts a new light on a mystery and, you know, for a minute the world makes sense. Is there anything more to discover on this story? There's definitely more to discover. I feel, I think, I'm sure you've had this for some stories too. You just feel like some stories are never quite done. You can never quite know enough. I could always learn new things. I could always find new understanding. I'm sure I'll be boring people at parties about it when I'm 80. Well, you won't be boring anyone. I'm, I'm sure of that. Um, thank you very much indeed for for joining us, and I think you'll have you'll have encouraged everyone to go out and read about this for themselves. I mean, just apart from anything else, the story of the the history of the Congo in this period uh, is so fascinating. And given that it leads on to what is today has been the bloodiest, we think it's now it's the bloodiest conflict since the Second World War. Is it the rolling civil war in the Congo? Yeah, I mean that. Poor nation hasn't had a chance. If, one of the things that I looked into was the history of Belgian colonialism, which I'm sure you've heard about. It was particularly brutal. Between 8 and 10 million Congolese died of exhaustion, uh, murder, sickness during you know what was probably a 20-year peak of, its, uh, of the Belgian rule. And I just don't think the Congo ever recovered from that to some extent. And I think Hamakol was smart enough to realize that this country had to right itself pretty quickly in order to get over the kind of the wounds of its history. And I just don't think it ever has. If you start looking into its history, it's conflict after conflict, coup after coup, dictator after dictator. And I think that we can sometimes take a, 
a somewhat superior attitude from here. We can say, oh, well, they just never figured out how to rule themselves. But I think with that much hurt and that much pain and that much trauma in its history, it's very difficult. I mean, what was instructive to me, especially in this moment, was to look at how we can call them grievances, but how kind of historical pain it echoes into the present. And I think many of us wish it wouldn't and wish it would go away, but we, we have to address it. And that, to me, is the lesson of the Congo. Well, thank you so much. The book is called? It's called uh, Operation Morthor, and it's available at all good booksellers, and I'm sure some bad ones. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Hi everyone, it's me, Dan Snow. Just a quick request. It's so annoying and I hate it when other podcasts do this, but now I'm doing it and I hate myself. Please, please go onto iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts and give us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps, basically boosts up the chart, which is good. And then more people listen, which is nice. So if you could do that, I'd be very grateful. I understand if you don't want to subscribe to my TV channel. I understand if you don't want to buy my calendar, but this is free. Come on, do me a favor. Thanks. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code Dan Snow at checkout.